Hello, welcome to another episode of Unpacking Neuroqueerness. I have um, another guest on today. Um, we're gonna, uh, at her request, we're gonna call her X. Um, and uh, yeah, so I have a, a few questions for her. Um, and uh, we're, so we're just gonna, we're gonna get started. So, X, um, tell me a little bit about your childhood and um, maybe, like, when you started noticing that you were different. I, um, my, well, to start, my brother's autistic. Um, I was born in 1995 because we're in 1997, both of us in Moscow. Neurodivergence wasn't really a thing. <laughs> yeah. My mum kind of knew with my brother around maybe a year and a half, two years old, which is when it starts. She's like, um, you know, she'd go to Russian doctors, like, oh, he's a boy. So what happens? And she's like, I don't know about this. And so she finally got him tested. I don't quite remember the date because I was quite young and I'm not great with numbers, but before I was in first grade. So before I was six, for sure. And he was diagnosed with autistic. And as an extra bonus, we had the rest of the family, immediate family, diagnosed, which is how I got an ADHD diagnosis as a child that is a cis woman <laughs> now, right? Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting experience, especially listening to previous episodes on this podcast. Sue, for example, or... Um, you talking about other neurodivergent women, and I hear this a lot from other women, and I try to support them any way I can, is I was lucky and very privileged. To In have. part because, we went, well, there's something going on with him. There's also something going on with her, but we're not entirely sure what it is. Mm -hmm. She sits down, she won't stop talking on airplanes. What's that? Mm. <laughs> mm. You know, once she sits down, she just will shut up. <laughs> um, so it, Listening to other people's, not just on your podcast, but as social media gets to be bigger, and there's a lot of problematic things with that as well, mm -hmm. which we can talk about on a different episode, mm -hmm. if you like, because it's a whole different can of worms. Um, I don't relate to many women with late diagnosed ADHD, mm -hmm. which, is not a, which is not a criticism of either of us. <laughs> yeah, well, because you've had a very different experience being diagnosed earlier. So yeah. as a kid, even though my parents, and my mom has ADHD, my father has ADHD, he's also on the spectrum, although I don't know if he's ever been diagnosed, but he's a physicist. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Um, you know, and growing up around my brother, who we've started calling, a, a long time ago, we started calling each other other brain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have a very special sibling relationship. In part, my mom disclosed this to me, I think it was like, year and a half ago I think it was in front of when she finally met my husband it was probably two and a half years ago then she said, was trying to explain our childhood and he asked about Alex's autism and she said well we didn't know whether he'd actually ever be able to speak or not mm -hmm. so because I was so close in age they had a love they had a therapist come in lived in Moscow for ages <laughs> to help him with a slightly better version of ABA, which is not great, 
Yeah. Um, Alex is still unpacking that, but I was a part of that, so I kind of understand that. Mm -hmm. And it was the first time I ever heard my mom say, yeah, we were preparing her to kind of take care of him if we had died. Mm, I see. So you kind of, whereas I never had that issue with Alex. I was like, he's very capable. Why can't you fucking see it? And they soon did, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, you have to put an undershirt under the itchy sweater if you want him to not cry on his birthday. He was yeah, like, of course. You have to put an undershirt under yeah. the sweater when you do it. Yeah. <laughs> you know. A lot of these things are, like, so simple. Like, with sensory overload and stuff, it's like... And that's what drives me crazy with the whole ABA um, stuff. They had, is, to, sorry to interrupt. They had this thing with him was break the cookie. Don't hmm. be upset, just break the cookie. Yeah. You have to not cry after breaking the cookie. Uh-huh. And he's like, I still don't like breaking the cookie. I'm like, that's Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, no, because it's like... There's so much focus on just the behavior itself, like with, with stimming, for for instance. Yeah. And well, I went into ballet, which helped. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah, ballet. See, and a lot of these things, and like that's what I find with a lot of ADHDers, um, and autistics <laughs> is that uh, we we get into like you know gymnat, like we have our special interests, and then like we we use um, we can like use it like to our advantage and like we that anyways this special interest is just like it's another well, thing you, to, you act right i act yes exactly yeah. and um i mean we all we all have our special interests and i think a lot of people don't net people don't realize that it's it's a pot it's actually a positive trait of our neurodivergence it's not this other thing that we do you know, despite our neurodivergence, it's, it's but part. sometimes we do, right? That's the thing. It's, it's, you know, I, there's not, sorry to cut you off. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a lot of people, and I remember even as a kid, the books we'd read, like, it's a superpower. Like, yeah, kind it's... Of, but also not. Like, exactly. it's, it's that yeah. sort of dichotomy, mm -hmm. um, which I, I don't know if I said this before, because my brother's autistic also has ADHD. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did say that before. So in some ways, he does understand me better. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. No, I feel like we we as neurodistinct people definitely have this thing where we understand each other a lot better than like neurotypicals understand us. And I also feel like, yeah, like it it is a two way thing. Like I like to ignore, and I did an episode on this recently that. I like to acknowledge um, the positive aspects of our neuro neurodivergence, but I also want people to be okay with the fact that we have struggles. And like that, I was talking about the the problem that with the term "differently abled" with that euphemism. Yeah, for special needs is better, but it's not right. You know. It's yeah, <laughs> because it's it's like it's it's trying it's deviating it's because the the person that's that's using the term which is usually neurotypical is using it because they're uncomfortable saying disability because they're uncomfortable just acknowledging certain disabilities as disabilities and like the fact that oh i'm i'm disabled at that they're saying oh but you're differently abled and i'm like no i'm i have abilities but i'm also disabled yeah. so it's like yeah um, I find when I bring that up in conversations with people, a, a specific example. So, um, say again, going back to what I was saying, my brother was ADHD and not, in and is autistic. Mm -hmm. 
my partner who's still undiagnosed autistic is, I'm 27 for reference, he's 33 now, I think. Um, he was undiagnosed, but he obviously does have a pit. <laughs> yeah. And he's also English, which in some ways makes things worse. Because <laughs> in some ways I feel, and this is a not a professional opinion, um, more it's more of an observation. Whether it's right or not is a completely different story. Um, English people have an easier way of codifying behaviors that are easier to understand. Mm. Um, there's a lot more nuance in, in, in different kinds of dialects and different kinds of English culture, things like that. Yeah. Which, uh -huh. By the way, my husband is completely fascinated by. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Um, he can do any accent almost perfectly mm. explained as it, because it, yeah. Do it's yeah. But occasionally, and I'm not going to talk too much about that because it's a him thing, and I don't want to talk about him too much. There have been times in group situations, especially with his friends, and in some ways he's right. I he's watching me mask as an ADHD -er rather than an autistic, so I become extra extroverted. So I already know what people are going to ask me. Mm -hmm. I explain things before they're, you know, actually asked, which in British culture is a faux pas. Mm. You know, I have a lot of things to say. If I'm not afraid to say them, that's probably one of the other reasons I was diagnosed as a kid is because I speak like a, a, a white male when I was, I spoke like a white male when I was four. <laughs> mm. I just didn't give a shit. Um, and there's been times where you said, oh, that's embarrassing. Like, okay, so there's a difference between saying that's embarrassing and saying you don't feel comfortable. Yeah, exactly. You know, mm -hmm. and that's an internalized kind of ableism, and I don't want to talk about that much more. That I mm -hmm. think I, once I hit 17, I grew up kind of on my own. Yeah. Or around a family that kind of understood it, found it annoying, but was like, you know, we all need space. We would all take breaks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Someone yeah. would say, I need a, I need like five minutes. They'd be like, yeah, sure. Whatever. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's also really good when you, when you can have people around you that you, you can ask for accommodations and they'll give you those accommodations and support. Whereas his family's lovely and also gives him accommodation. That's great. However, I think there's a lot of internalized stuff there that I'm having. It's, it's reteaching me how to re-explain myself. Yeah. Well, I guess it's <laughs> it's like different people. I guess different ways work with different people. Like everyone has their own communication style, and I think it's also all about figuring out like how to best, most effectively communicate this to this specific person. Exactly, but also what I'm learning because that was that was what I used to think all the time as a kid. Mm -hmm. It's what made me a better writer, I think, because mm -hmm. it kept all my thoughts still on a page. Yeah. Was okay. This would make sense. How can I better explain it? And there is that, right? But there was um, an episode on one of uh, one of your podcast episodes. You're talking about where you assume it's your fault, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Even mm -hmm. though you don't, it, it's not. I mean, fault is a terrible word. You might be contributing some part of an interaction mm -hmm. that requires a certain amount of people. Um, but over-processing, I would say, rather than under-processing, it's over-processing for me. Yeah. I feel that where I'm... Uh, one thing I talked about with Susanna lately is 
replaying, and she could relate a lot to it as well, replaying conversations in our head. Because, like, I'll be thinking about, I mean, during the conversation, I'll be constantly thinking about, you know, what I'm doing and how I'm saying it, and I'll even zone out because of that. But then after the conversation, I'll be just playing it over and over. And she said she does the same thing with, you know, like, oh, but, but did I, did I, was I clear with this? Did they take it this way? Did they take it that way? And I'm like breaking it down, like to such minute details, like their facial expressions in that certain moment and everything. Which um, is a completely rational response. And I think in, in my general knowledge, I, that's, it's a trauma response. Yeah. Is what it is. Yeah. Whether there's lots of articles by people who are not neurodivergent. Um, my 27 years of living, and I'm not a professional, and professional in me, and um, people I've spoken to have confided in me about this. There are no untraumatized neurodivergent people. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I can attest, so, I would attest to that. It's, mm-hmm. Whenever people do studies about them, you know, in Lancet and all of these other things, you don't, it's, academic studies aren't helpful to a degree if it gives people something that they can learn to explain to other people without over-defining themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Some things you were saying on another episode, which is, you know, I'm, so I'm nervous and queer, which tends to be an overlapping thing. Yeah. I'm yes. by husband by, mm. and because we don't understand, well, not what we don't understand, we sort of just go, this person's pretty, why should I like them, etc. brains going somewhere else. But the thing I was going to say is if you have a way of explaining that to people in a coherent manner, which we were yeah. talking about before, right? Mm-hmm. If you want to disclose it, yeah. you're hoping that a formal diagnosis of some kind in a textbook will uh-huh. be like, hey, you know this thing yeah. that's been puzzling? Mm-hmm. But then I it, have a variation of this thing. Yeah. <laughs> and then it also depends, like, that's like why it's such a bummer that there are such stigmatized views of ADHD and autism because then I mean it's like then it just means that you have to spend a few more a few extra minutes talking to them like you said I I have a variation of this like sorry um, you know do you want is this person important enough to you yeah and then it depends and then it's like like if they're not even that important to me I might not even disclose I might, like, if I need to tell them, hey, I need extra time to process what you're saying, I'll just say that, but, um, but I won't, like, yeah, if I'm not, if I don't see myself talking to that person again, I probably won't disclose. Um, Yeah. Um, and, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's just, uh, yeah, there's definitely a lot, uh, so how do you feel about self-diagnosis because I I know it is really important for those that can't afford a formal diagnosis or you know because there's still a lot of bias in the medical community um, sometimes self-diagnosis is the only option but then I also know that you don't want like it can also harm our community if too many people self-diagnose and then it's going to give neurotypicals like a twisted idea 
Like, it's going to lead to more neurotypical saying stuff like, oh, we're all a little bit autistic when, you know, I, it's not true. Yeah. Um, I think you talked about, you know, over, like, having a diagnosis or a sexual orientation or uh, a race, not necessarily defined but inform who you are. I mean, it kind of, it shapes your mm-hmm. experience, right? Yeah. It's not mm-hmm. everything you are, which is what you were saying. But it's mm-hmm. to, it, it's a like, big I'm part. Just act well, like I am mostly this, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. no, I'm mostly ADHD. Not yeah. as a percentage, but it shapes the way my yeah, brain yeah, of course, yeah. To what you were saying, I think talking uh, more recently in the way that it, news has perceived queer people um, mm-hmm. is a great example because even in the queer community, there's a lot of self policing. Yeah, you know, you have to go through certain trauma <laughs> you mm. have to especially for um and again i'm not part of the like mask on mask gay community but for my there's you know there's a lot of self the perpetuation of patriarchal kind of values because that is a trauma response and so if someone comes in who hasn't been formally diagnosed or has doesn't have enough not diagnosed sorry but it, you know has only been queer for, or mm-hmm. come out as queer for a couple of months. Yeah. Like, you're a baby queer, oh, that's cute. You know, you don't know mm-hmm. anything about this, which is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and there's, I keep waiting for people to have that conversation. But one, people who are neurodivergent are more, more likely to be queer. Mm-hmm. And secondly, the two thing, the two communities are very similar. Yeah. True. I would they say, are. yeah. I think the neurodivergent community is probably kinder in some ways. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but we're less easy to capitalize on at the moment, I think is mm-hmm. why we're less accepted, right? Yeah. Or, or at least people, like, industries haven't figured out a way to capitalize right. yet. Yeah. Do you, do you find, because I'm seeing, I can kind of see companies and algorithms starting to capitalize on our divergence yeah i see it more i mean it's i think it's still better than seeing stuff like the anti-tylenol like all this ableist um yeah tylenol it's like not it, better or worse i'm, I'm asking no i know but i definitely <laughs> noticed it i've noticed like it's being it's being talked about more. It's like it's coming up more, but then you can tell when it's like someone that actually knows about it and someone that's kind of just using the word. Um, yeah. Well, I think for neurodivergent people, we do know the difference. Yeah. That's it, the scary bit for neurotypicals. I don't think they. No, that's the, that's the scary thing. Yeah. Not. They don't know what they don't. Yeah. It's. Because they don't have, like, they, they haven't had exposure to enough, you know, information about it and, you know, information from lived experience. And it's interesting, you know, and I'm not trying to criticize her at all, of course, but, you know, I hadn't actually realized the first time when I was talking to her about a week ago, I talked to your grandmother at the um, mm-hmm. family reunion. Um, and, you know... At that point, I just, I hadn't realized that she was your grandmother yet, but I remember that I was telling her about my podcast and everything and about this oh, work. Of course she mentioned it. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, she was like, 
because I remember first I was like when I was telling her about my podcast and she was asking oh so you talk to a lot of doctors and stuff and I was like no I talk I'm I'm more focusing on you know people with lived experiences like you know and and then she she mentioned you like she didn't mention your name but she mentioned that she had family on on the um, you know neurodivergent family essentially um and wait sorry (laughs) i didn't hear that one the problem i mean um we all love sarah and she has done very well she also has dyslexia Mm. Um, and she she's Mm -hmm. spent a lot of her time honorably and wonderfully teaching other people dyslexia mostly women Mm-hmm. Who I managed to get into universities without probably being able to read things mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, yeah. she was on. She, I don't know if she still is on, but she was on the board of Sarah Lawrence for a very long time. Yeah, she's a very progressive woman in the best way. Mm-hmm. And as someone who's neurodivergent, you see someone else who's neurodivergent that you know whether or not they actually are. I I I personally think she is. Um, you know. They're either in a part of their lives where it does it doesn't really matter to them as much anymore, yeah. or they don't really want to look mm-hmm. into it because they've gotten this far, and yeah. I respect that. Mm-hmm. There's also a part of me that you know it's not pity; it's respect, but also wondering. I wonder how much happier you could have not that she's not happy with herself because she's a lovely human being, but how much happier you could have been growing up. Yeah. But I know what that feels like. Yeah. Imagine sort of experience for one woman in this generation to another woman in that generation going, I I just wonder how much more magnificent things you could have done. Yeah. No, that's for Not sure. You need to be productive all the time things or like you haven't done enough as in you have done everything. Is there anything else you could have done for yourself? And that's not something you want to tell people (laughs) to their face, you know, Mm -hmm. because it might be misconstrued the wrong way. It is a very neurodivergent way of going. Yeah. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, it's like I could tell, like, that she was interested. It was just interesting talking to her because it's like, and, and it's usually like that when I talk to older generations. It's like... They have, I mean, it was just interesting, and this doesn't, it's nothing against her, but it's, like, the fact that the first thing, like, that she first asked if I had, like, the people that I was, assumed if it was doctors, it's because they assume that, like, when they hear, you know, neurodivergence, they default to, like, oh, who's talking about neurodivergence, or who are they gonna read? Who are they gonna listen to? They default to the medical community instead of defaulting to neurodivergent people. With and not that there's anything wrong because like we we need both of these. That most neurodivergent people, sorry, is that they either are too stressed out. The ones that have made it through medicine are incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't make. I mean, not to diminish what they've gone through, but you know, there's a lot of. People that are worthy of doing that they just haven't been able to do it because of other circumstances yeah yeah and it's like they haven't been given well they haven't this system really hasn't allowed them to get to the places where they can have their voices 
where they can be heard in the same way as the medical community has has been heard. Um, and but it's just. Oh no, no worries. Um, what were you gonna say actually? Because I was just kind of on a uh, tangent. It's okay. Because um, I have, I did an undergrad and a master's, and I enjoy learning. I do find writing articles in a certain way, and it's meant to be this way. It's meant to be rigorous. It's meant mm -hmm. to be a certain way. But there's a lot of. It, it, it's not a secret. There's a lot of different sort of measures in academia that you know the way that oops, i'm rambling but the point is being that like i would write something and say it's really great um it just doesn't have enough references and so i'd add the references and they go well it doesn't have enough of male authors in it okay uh, or it doesn't have enough english authors because i'd be writing about um cold war relations in my undergraduate and i'd do a lot of translation on my own because I found it difficult to find proper translations at the time of the letters I wanted to translate but you can't just yeah. translate like well obviously I can <laughs> um, there's a lot of where do you come from a lot of um, class which is something I learned of mm -hmm. you know I kind of understood but only learned properly what class was when I first came to the UK mm -hmm. um they expect you to go through certain hurdles in order to be respected. Yeah. And watching that, I kind of go, I understand that someone needs to go through certain things in order to understand something else. Mm-hmm. But some of those hurdles are traumatic. Yeah. You're doing it for yourselves. Yes, yes. <laughs> if you're someone who doesn't accept those kinds of hurdles as a given, Mm-hmm. If there's someone who goes, well, a concrete example, being at school, sitting for six hours a day mm. in a crowded classroom, mm -hmm. I just quickly learned to go, you know, get my teachers to trust me, go, I need to go sit in the library and I need to go to the gym for 30 minutes because I can't yeah. do that. Yeah. Um, same thing in those kinds of systems, except the greater the systems become, the less flexible they are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what school kind of teaches you in a way is if you don't accept what everyone else wants then you have to start teaching it to yourself and um, going back to what you're saying about like teaching yourself as someone who's younger in our previous kind of earlier conversation mm -hmm. or even like Sarah her having to create systems around her in order to do well is something that on the one hand, allows a lot of people who are neurodivergent to learn more about themselves because they have to. Yeah. On the other hand, they miss out on a whole lot of developmental things because they have to think about everything that's supposed to be a given. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. It that makes sense. Yeah. So it's you know trauma isn't just what happens to you; it's also what doesn't happen to you. And I don't mean like oh my daddy didn't buy me that kind of trauma because that's what every time I say like oh well my parents were rich, but that's not really the point. Um. <laughs> point is, you know, if it doesn't matter whether the symptoms were well-meaning or not, they didn't have the information. You weren't given the same amount of support, whether it was malicious intent or not. Yeah. You had to take that extra developmental energy to figure out how things work for yourselves. And that's good to an extent. Yeah. But not in the long term, like, 
I mean, in the long term, it starts. You have time to resolve that or talk to someone about it or have extra systems in place that give you that support. You know, you can be um, cognitively very mature and understand what you're feeling, but still be confused why you're feeling the thing you're feeling. (laughs) Yeah. No, I, I can. Yeah, I relate to that. You can be like, I know why I'm feeling this thing. I'm doing everything I can that I should be doing to get over this thing. It's not working. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, I I felt that a lot. Um, And it's interesting, like, I I don't think I had thought about it from that perspective as much about how, because I was having to think about these things so much it took away from me experiencing other things. Um, it probably also added in some ways, right? In but some ways, yeah, true. Developmentally, yeah. There's times you, you kind of, as I think about people in the past, I, I've had other experiences that probably exacerbated this because I'm around a lot of older people when I was younger, but, you know, or watch when I would go back to my classmates and they were acting like children, I'm like, do you not see how this is going to, you know, because I have impulse control, so I'm constantly on top of that. <laughs> so if someone acts like an idiot on purpose, or annoys someone on purpose, mm-hmm. my first thought is, why would you do that on purpose? I do that by accident. <laughs> mm. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like, they thought it through, and they just kept going. Yeah. That's the difference. If you're constantly thinking, how can I not annoy someone? Yeah, a lot, yeah, (laughs) yeah, it's true, yeah, because I'm certainly always... You yourself in a good way, right, because there's some part of you that's like, I give a shit, at least Mm -hmm. for me, and I'm very grateful to that part of me as annoying as it is. (laughs) Well, sometimes it's, it's good to have that, because then, you know, you're able to work, like, impulsively a little bit, like, you're not always, like in your head because like I don't I, I don't like it when I get in my head too much and then because I'm like so nervous about this interaction or how am I coming across or this or that and then I'm not even you know I can't even function because I'm just too stuck um but then it's like I think a good balance of like having that because it is really helpful to have some of that but then also be able to to just be working more directly. And then I think it's also been like, as I've understood my neurodivergence more Mm -hmm. and how to advocate and how to explain and everything, like when I need support or whatever, it's just hard, by the way, asking for support when you're a divergent. People don't talk about that enough. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. It's true. And it's hard. You think you know everything. Like, no, I've just learned I can't ask people for shit. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Yes. And it is. Because you it's, ask people and they try and help, and you're like, I've tried that before. They're like, have you? I'm like, yes. Yes. And it's, they, they always, a lot like, of times. Prove it. I'm like, I will prove it. And they'll be yeah. like, oh, it's okay. I'm like, but it could be so much better and so much easier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, because a lot of times they'll, they'll like suggest, like, well intentionally, with, with well, good yeah. intentions, of course, but they're suggesting, like, what would work for them. And, and it's not always what would work for us. And there's just the, always going to be a little bit of a disconnect with that. Um, I, I do that quite a bit because people with ADHD tend to, I mean, in my experience, what I've read and in personal experience, 
relating to somebody and having them understand you is, is something I don't always get, right? Mm -hmm. So from a young age, I learned if I give my experience as in I understand you, hopefully this person will be heard. Obviously, neurotypicals don't see it that way. <laughs> Yeah. They say it as, oh, you're making this about exactly. you. Exactly. <laughs> oh my God, that's another thing that's so hard, dude. It's just like, and it's a it's a mixed bag because on the one hand, I understand. <laughs> I can understand I their perspective too, and I can't but stop, and it's really hard. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's just like different, different communication styles. You know, one of those other neurotypical, neuro distinct. Um, Misused. And I know we're jumping all over the place, but that's what I tend to do. <laughs> no, I, I, I know. it's I, I, I like it because it's, you know, we're just covering all this different stuff. Um, but and... it's the same if you have small talk, again, to like, English people. Um, I, you know, the, the small talk, and I don't think about it this way, but I tried to, I had to explain it to people, like to Alex when he was younger. So I kind of know how to deductively explain it, even though I'm a very inductive person. <laughs> I hate small talk, yeah. But it's because not a lot of, I mean, some people get comfort from it, right? I talked to my mm -hmm. father in law about weather stuff. He's like, well, it allows you to know whether that person's up for talking generally. I'm like, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's true. It, it, it can be like a good gauge of like. It's an introduction. I understand. Some yeah. people need that. I don't need that, mm -hmm. but some people do. Yeah. I understand <laughs> that some people need it. I just like. I always found myself getting so annoyed at when it's like. I mean, unless my eyelashes are freezing together, I don't really want to talk. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's because it's like it's but some people will make small talk with me. You know, like my dad when he would have like um, openings for his like when he would have an art show for his photos, like with some older guy that I don't know will come up to me and start talking and start making small talk with me. And I know the only reason he's doing this is because he feels like he has to do it. And then the only reason I'm engaged in this at all is because I feel like I have to be engaged in it. And we're not going anywhere with this conversation. It's just this endless loop of small talk. And it's like, I, I need, I need a meat, like a, some, a bone or something. I need like something that we're actually... You know, and it's trying to put your teeth into. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah I'm trying to get something, and it's just like I'm on the bone, and there's nothing left. Everyone sucked out the marrow. Everything's yeah, gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It feels a lot like that. Um, like you dug this up, you dusted the you know the sand off, whatever, mm -hmm. and you're trying to put this back into a modern conversation. This isn't going to work, man. No. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, and then it's just like. I don't know, I always found found myself another level of masking was like, how do I end the conversation when I could tell that it's not, you know, and then I figured out like, oh, I just tell him I need to talk to my dad or something, but. Yeah, um, family members are helpful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, family members are helpful to have around. It's um, interesting to hear from your perspective, because, I mean, I was... I even I read reread my notes from Dr. Kemener, who was the person who diagnosed me and my brother in New York when we were kids. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that she wrote when I was like nine years old or something, she is a very self-aware, very um, tall and pretty girl, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. I thought was interesting. Um, and the more I think about it, I'm, I've been trying to figure out how you know the fact that I don't look like a brick. 
um, has sort of filtered my experience as a neurodivergent woman. Because mm. I'm weird enough that people found me strange. But there's, I think, a certain amount of toleration that happens widely as you get older because people are attracted to you mm -hmm. or think you're interesting for this or that reason or because I have my father's legs, which I do. So, you know, mm -hmm. like, um, I remember it in a similar way to your father and you at the art shows going, to, uh, being at cocktail parties, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. at Sarah's or anywhere else. And it's part of why it probably makes me a decent journalist is I like finding people and I can see people like you, right? Who you ask them the question, you can kind of hear the sigh of like pleasure that goes like, oh, someone wants to hear about this. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. matter if I actually understand it. I want to understand why they love it so much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and it's like, that's what I feel like when I talk about my special interests, I get really excited. Um, and then, because it, it, I just related to that a lot because I saw a meme recently yeah. and it was like, you know, autistics, you know, trying to um, keep a conversation like when it's small talk or whatever and it's like, all we're all stressed out. And then like, like oh, here's the thing about pigeons. <laughs> yeah, and then we're super excited and we're talking and we're just like, and then it's just interesting because like one of my special interests is weather. And a lot of people use weather as small talk. So, like, they'll start... <laughs> yeah, they'll start talking to me about the weather, and they think that they're doing small talk. They think that I'm only going to talk about it for maybe 20 seconds. And, oh, the strata cloud. Yeah, That's I start Not explaining... Not the time of year for it, is it? Like, <laughs> yeah, I start explaining everything, like, you know, the, the cold front is coming, and the jet stream is coming this way, and the, this rain, we're going to have... You have all the arm movements, too. I yeah, I start doing the arm <laughs> movements, and, you know, and all the... And then they're just like, you know, they're so lost. Because, like, I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> yeah, they, they didn't think that they were going to get this whole lecture, and it's just unfortunate because it's like they're really getting a free lesson on weather. Yeah, whereas I would love that. I'd be like, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> But I don't know, neurotypicals, they're funny, you know, they want to, they want to do, you know, not all of them, but a lot of them, they want to do. Again, we're not nerds, so we don't know. Uh, and going back to the small talk thing, I find a lot of it is, well, my perception of it is they're kind of assessing themselves in comparison to other people constantly. Yeah. Which uh, I don't do. I've learned not to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is a lot of this idea, like, of oh, having to be... Oh, so, like, what's be... your job? Oh, I do this. Like, mm -hmm. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care, yeah. Like, I don't care what you... Is it you happy? Yeah. Do you enjoy what you do? Yeah. Is it bringing value to your life? And the... Yeah. It's not and about, like, a status thing. Because for so many people, it's, like, this status thing. And it's not... And it's not... Yeah. I mean, it's, it's sad and it's understandable, right? It's not to say that it's not important because economic status is important because you have to survive it's more kind of and i find the way that neurotypicals talk oh, you don't need to define your entire personality by being phd which mm -hmm. i don't it just helps to inform quite a bit yeah or you know you don't have mm -hmm. to be autistic etc etc like well you also don't have to gauge at how successful you are at 20 
whatever it is mm -hmm. just because you don't have a house yet mm -hmm. yeah yeah but it's like these old i feel like you it's... Want to talk about putting yourself in a box <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah it's just these old you know people don't like it when you don't when you point that out and mm -hmm. i know that <laughs> yeah i mean it's just you know this neurotypical capitalist society and you know their their norms of like what it's like people just take it's i don't know and it's not everyone but it's like there are and a lot of complex than that but there's a lot of sort of um people do restrict themselves and they go well i it, it's i'll put this in terms of um, the queer community just because i think it's it's easier to explain um, people going well who are the homophobic or people who are queer but are closeted they go like well i don't think you should do that because it's too much well it's not really your business if it's too much mm -hmm. yeah yeah why does, why does it affect you why do you care exactly why do you care yeah that's the same kind of um feeling i get when neurotypes go like why can't you act like this i'm not hurting you in fact you know, mm -hmm. if someone says, oh, this conversation is unhelpful, I'll stop. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then uh, the problem is, like, so many times they don't say it. Like, they are They want you to stop, but they, they expect you to just figure it out. Well, I think is I can figure it out. Um, I usually just <laughs> keep going. I can't even or, figure it out sometimes. At least <laughs> it's most, most social interactions, in, it's in, in big groups that I have trouble. Um happen after my meds wear off <laughs> mm. mm -hmm. so i can feel it happening and i can't stop it and it's not it's it's very frustrating because for example my partner who is autistic um used to assume that i just didn't know i was doing it because that was his experience mm -hmm. right if he's doing something that is comes across as a social faux pas mm -hmm. it's because he doesn't know yeah and so, a lot yeah for him to watch me and go, oh, mm -hmm. so you don't know, like, oh, no, I know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sometimes that does happen to me where I do know, but I still don't care. I'm like, okay, you're... Well, sometimes it doesn't matter. Like, the, their, yeah. their ideas don't... It's not that they don't matter. It's that that construct really shouldn't be there. Yeah, the person. construct shouldn't be there. That's what I mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think there's... I, I'm learning to, as I get older, because I'm again, 27 now, get better at finding a balance between addressing that full-on and also not feeling as I'm playing the part of the, you know, kind of happy neurodivergent housewife sort of thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Where I'm like, you have to do it politely. You have to do it in the best way. Mm -hmm. You have to not upset other people when you do it. And I'm still, you know, struggling and sometimes failing to do that. I think... I mean, I, I tend to be on the more extroverted side of saying those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. I mean, I always like saying over not saying and i mean maybe that's just my personal preference but like i i like it when people just tell me like as it is like because there's so much um so many people especially neurotypicals they do so much tiptoeing around like saying things and and it's just it gets confusing i mean i find myself well, doing everyone. this Sometimes they need that, right? It's mm -hmm. it's more for when they're talking to you about something. It's more about 
them getting themselves comfortable or mm-hmm. in the space to say that. Yeah. You know, so it's yeah. not about you. And that I, I understand. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that's the whole not ready thing. Yeah. Or they just, you know, you can't, yeah. You know, can't go around saying, when I was a kid, I used to, I was when I was in ballet in Moscow. There was quite a few you know, underground queer spaces, and you learn to read quickly. Like mm-hmm. you know, two thousand. Um, used to do it at school. Turns out people don't like you reading subtext as text. Mm. Even queer people don't like you doing that. Um, there's a fine line between destroying someone's world and reading them, which is something I learned very very quickly as a kid. Like, oh, I thought you knew that your parents didn't take care of you, and that's where you're trying to get everyone else to pay attention to you as a six-year-old. Oh, uh-huh. okay, you didn't know that. I'm oh. so sorry. <laughs> like, it was just, like you're th- and, and it's a very snide way as a six-year-old of being like, oh, I'm part of this culture. Mm-hmm. And going, oh, I just mm-hmm. unlocked something you didn't need to know. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Like, it's mm-hmm. just... Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> it makes sense, yeah. It's because, like... Yeah, a lot of people are. They're just you not they're even. Aware, but they're not. <laughs> they're not. They don't. They're not aware of what's going on. Um, because they can turn it off. That's the mm-hmm. difference. Yeah. True. Yeah. Um, I have a question. Uh, on the top of you know the intersectionality of being queer and being neurodivergent, how did it? How was the comparison? Like, for you, what was it like coming out um, as LGBT compared to coming out as neurodivergent to the people that you have chosen to disclose? Um, I've never, like, probably come out to my family. I never had to. So if they listen to this, mm-hmm. hi! Um, <laughs> um, it was two, uh, Christmas, yeah, two Christmases ago, I was talking to mom or I was visiting we were talking about kind of queer experience, which is I'm happy you and Alex were always straight because it's so hard. I'm like, I don't think I was straight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it was the closest we ever got to that conversation. So what do you mean? I'm like, I don't think, like, it's not that I wasn't attracted to boys. I think I over, like, she's like, you were boy crazy. I'm like, I think I was overdoing it as a performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I was, I like both. I like all genders, non-genders, etc. Um, I think Choosing someone to like every week is not a normal thing. <laughs> you know, going like, oh, I should like the boy. I'll choose this one to hyperfixate on. Which So that's a great way to get into the intersection, right? Because mm-hmm. you choose, it's, it's, it's dopamine. You go, I will focus on this person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or as long as I can, which is usually two hours. <laughs> mm, yeah. Yeah. I um. thankfully learned to not do that very quickly and I think because Russia is a very queer phobic terroristic state you just don't think about it I didn't have the language to think about it very much we had some teachers that I knew were bi and some underground scenes and people I knew who I knew were queer and friends that were queer Um, and I knew I was queer I just and in some ways it's for the better I don't mean going back to the conversation about don't let it define you. It wasn't the one thing about me that I found interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, in the same way, I think ADHD, it, it, both of those, by the way, I 
probably wish I kind of leaned into more for myself, not necessarily explaining it to people, but for thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Instead, I tried to minimize both so that no one else could notice. Mm. Yeah. It's I not see. that I hadn't accepted it. I went, okay, so these two things are things. Yeah. How do I, kind of masking, but also like, how do I just make it seem effortless? I took the ballet approach to this. How many ways can I practice doing things? Mm-hmm. To make it less obvious. I see. Which so is not a terrible approach in terms of, you know, I built systems that actually worked for me. Mm-hmm. To some, some really did not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's aspects of that that are helpful. Yeah. Um, but also it is a form of masking. Yeah. Not in the way most people describe it, but it still is. Mm-hmm. You're just and integrating it's... it into your daily routine until it's no longer sustainable. And then someone, like in my experience, would say, oh, happened. I think you're... Like, where did this fucking come from? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're so reliable the time, mm-hmm. one time you haven't done this, why is it like that? It, it feels like, it, even though it's probably rejection sensitive dysphoria, growing up it felt like whenever someone would respond that way, it, it's as though they shifted their entire idea of me based on one interaction. Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. is hard. Because you think you have context, you have things that you do for people and the effort you put in for people. Yeah. No, it's frustrating because then it's like sometimes you still have this, um, you know, misread or this struggle, like even when you're like, masking so hard and like taking all these things into account and and also when you know it's not working and it's still happening that's the worst yeah you're masking like this is not helpful and you can't stop yeah yeah um so like that's why i've found and it it still like depends a lot on on the person but i've found a lot of comfort lately in in like situations that I'm comfortable with doing it and unmasking and just, you know, voicing my needs and my differences and, you know, I'd rather this person see me, even though they like see me unmasked most of the time. And then because like if they see me unmasked more and then they slowly become more accepting, even though it might take some time and some explaining and then them getting used to it they'll slowly become more accepting and understanding to the point where I'm more comfortable unmasking and I'm not masking so hard because I'm not worried about those moments where they're going to be like, wait, where did this come from? Why are you acting like this now? Or, and that's where it becomes a sort of, it's, um, again, getting into after living alone for so long and never being in a long-term relationship and suddenly being married. Um, being around someone a lot of the time is hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, especially if that person is learning, unlearning that you need to be consistent all the time. Mm-hmm. You're around someone with ADHD. I'm not going to be consistent all the time. I try. It's not going to happen. <laughs> not going to happen. No. You know. Yeah. Me too. Like with even just, and maybe this is like part of why I suspect having ADHD as well, but I have this hyperactivity. Well, I have like phases. Like, I'll have, sometimes throughout the same day, I'll be super hyperactive, like, in the morning, for example, 
And then in the afternoon, all of a sudden, I'll be like burned out. I'll be like in executive dysfunction. I'll be like. The afternoon for me is executive dysfunction. Yeah. And it, it can fluctuate. Like, I feel it fluctuating. Like, it goes up and down, like, throughout one day, even. Um, but then you have a better experience what it's like to be a woman, in a way, <laughs> in that regard. Yeah. I, yeah. It's, it's also hormonal. Like, it makes. Mm -hmm. If someone with ADHD, who's also has, you know, who's a woman, this woman, um, hormones affect the shit out of you. Yeah. No, I can imagine. I think that's like, the closest you'll probably understand. <laughs> probably the closest, yeah. Like, um, I talk to a lot of, you know, guys, and they go, like, I wake up and I have the same energy level all day. I'm like... I don't know <gasps> how they do that. I can't do fascinating. that. Fascinating. Yeah, that's fascinating to me. You still act like a dick. Love yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, um, I have... Uh, well, this has um, been... I have a I couple... I have one question okay. um, before we end, which is what, if you don't mind sharing, what is... Do you have it perfect, not perfect, but like a situation you feel most comfortable in to unmask? Is it on your own? Is it with people? I'd say with family members, it's probably, I think close family members and friends, close friends as well, especially those that I've had a lot of conversations um, about neurodiversity with already. So there, I know that they're somewhat well-versed on it already and they somewhat like that's when I'm the most comfortable. Like maybe is just that because you're not constant, not constantly like worrying about what they're gonna. Yeah, about. I'm not masking as hard. I'm like I might be masking a little bit, like just as a trauma response. I think we're always masking a little bit, but I can sense that there's these environments. Like if it's just me and two or three close friends and no one else, I'm much more open and I'm like I'm out I might find myself stimming more I might find myself talking fast or getting excited and just being neurodivergent and showing my traits and just not caring whereas like even but it depends like that would be a private environment with friends like if I'm with the same friends but in a public environment it, there's a lot going on. There's like sensory rise. There'll be a lot going on, and then I'll also be like, well, because we're in public, and I'm I'm showing myself not just to them, but in a way, I'm even though not directly like other people. Yeah. So. Um, Good friends, right? How about for you? Is it like with friends as well that you feel the most uh, unmasked? I'm one on one with a couple of friends, mostly on my own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. I'm trying to learn to not do that. Well, I think on my own, like on my own, when I'm just like recording podcasts and stuff, that's probably like when I'm a hundred percent. Even when I'm recording, I mean, I guess even when I'm recording, I'm, I'm, I might have a little task, right? You have to do it. Yeah. So, I guess like, I mean, if I'm talking to a friend on the phone, maybe. Maybe I'd be even more unmasked than, like, if I'm, if I'm in a group with friends. But I feel like... Groups are hard, though. I don't know if that's just me, though. Yeah, I mean, the bigger the group, the harder it is. Like, if it's if I'm in a group with, with two or three friends, I'm going to be way more at ease than if it's six or seven friends. Even if I know everyone very well, it's just the bigger the group, the... The more there is to pay attention to, and the more stimuli. I've big Zoom calls, not a thing. No, I don't like big Zoom calls either, yeah. No. Yeah. I talk too much. 
I get I just get nervous I get a little overstimulated by like so many people talk because like you never know like when is it my turn to talk like there's so many I mean, people it's talking it's a thankful thing now where you, you know you have a someone can raise a hand now yeah yeah I've seen that which is great um but yeah I, I, I was part of a my partner's book group and I just kind of took myself out yeah it's just too stressful the environment yeah (laughs) it's too much this is not going to create a positive environment for the two yeah it's just this your time it's my time yeah yeah well conversations you can have when you know you're neurodivergent Mm -hmm. and thankfully you're being really lovely and teaching people about it and i'd love to support you in any way i can thank you yeah i'd love to do another episode with you um this has been great um this was a great one and uh yeah thank you for coming on uh to my listeners i I hope you all enjoyed this one and um i'll see you guys next time